0: Uh, pray with me as we continue in worship this morning. Lord God, thank you so much for this just chance to come together as a church family and to worship you. Thank you for the chance to gather, for the chance just to worship your name. Lord, we pray that your presence would just continue to be thick in this place, that anything that's of me would be quickly forgotten this morning, and that anything that's of you would stick to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new series this morning called, Who Do You Say That I Am?, you know, and uh, I don't know about some of you old Young Life people here, but there's an old Young Life song with the title, Who Do You Say That I Am, and I've had it stuck in my head all week. So uh, if you are from Young Life, prepare to have that stuck in your head. I'm sorry. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about, we're looking back at Jesus. We get the chance to look back at Jesus with 2,000 years of kind of reflection and theological input. You know, but we're going to kind of take this look at who Jesus was in from the lens of the people who actually walked with him and saw him. People didn't have that luxury when they first met Jesus. He appeared on the scene, and they didn't know what to make of him. You know, they kind of had these interactions with Jesus, and they had to try to form their thoughts about who he was. And this is actually one of the big questions of the Gospels is, who is this guy who is shown up on the scene saying these pretty outrageous things? And, you know, it got me thinking of how do we come to know who someone is? You know, and I was, the, part of what I was thinking about this is I had the opportunity this summer to, with my wife, lead a Christian dating group um, in conjunction with St. Mo's. And some of the people from Horizon were there and some people from St. Mo's were there. And one of the things that they talked about was this interesting thing of, like, you know, the evolution of dating, you used to kind of date people on the periphery of who you knew. It was a friend of someone that you knew. But almost nowadays, it's almost like everyone is like a stranger that you meet online. Like, and that's like this world of like, how do you start to know this person and who this person really is when they're coming out of a vacuum in left field and you're trying to formulate your thoughts? Like, is this person what they represent themselves to be on their profile or who are they really? You know, and it's a great question. Getting to know strangers is a strange thing, and it got me thinking that's exactly how Kira and I got to meet each other. We were online dating, and she was trying to figure out if I was safe to <laughs> travel across the country to spend time with me. And that's, a, maybe she still hasn't figured that out. I don't know. Like, um, but like, you know, one of the things that we talked about is it really raised this question of how, how did we kind of get to know someone? Well, there are several ways that you kind of like get to do this. I might need your help going with me here a little bit. I'm having a hard time with the slides. I think you get to know someone by, first of all, what they say, right? Like, this person, what they say maybe reflects a piece of who they are, but also what they do. You know, like, what they say and what they do is a large reflection of who a person is. You know, and on top of that, what they are like. What's their personality like? You know, I think these are some of the things that you start to piece together to the point, you know, it's funny. Like, when you know someone well, it's almost weird to try to think about someone taking a lens that's new and observing someone from the outside. And I had this kind of picture of, like, Okay, I want Kira to know who I am. I want her to know that I'm like a legit person. And she said one of the things that actually did this more than anything else for her is when she came out here, and I had a housewarming party, and a lot of you were there. And all of a sudden, it's like, hi, here's 50 or 60 of my closest friends. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck getting to know them all. And, uh, but one of the things that she said was that it seemed to solidify or to put into place the people who knew me well seemed to verify the things that I said and the things that I did, and what my personality seemed to be like, it put it in context, and all of a sudden, she had a better picture of who I really was, because she saw the people who knew me, and she saw people who said, affirmed the things about me. They said things about me that affirmed what she believed to be true about me, and so we're going I think this, this is powerful. What do people say about Jesus as they come into interaction with him? What do they, how do they experience him? And this is what we're really going to tackle in this series, um, You know, and this is kind of the question that's asked. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, Who do people say that I am? You know, Jesus is kind of curious. What are the crowds kind of saying about me? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that we're going to kind of be unpacking as we go through this whole series. Who do we say that he is? Who do the people say? You know, we're going to take a hard look at how people got to know Jesus and, how, and who they concluded that he was. And we're going to do a lot of this through interactions that were based in the book of Mark. So like, that's going to be like a lot of our foundation. Not all the stories will be out of Mark, but our foundation will be kind of looking at the book of Mark. And Mark's interesting. You know, a little background on the book of Mark. Um, it's written by John Mark. So like, that's where the name comes from. But a lot of people believe that it was the eyewitness accounts of Peter, that he was transcribing at the end of Peter's life. You know, and this is interesting, because for, cent- for decades, the stories of Jesus had been out there pretty prominently, and around the time that the disciples started being put to death, people started thinking, maybe we should write these things down before we kind of lose the records, and a lot of people believe that John Mark, who traveled around, like, actually was writing down the words of Peter, and I actually tend to believe that because of the way Peter's portrayed. He's not very favorable to himself in the book of Mark, and I think if you kind of read the books of First and Second Peter, it makes sense that he would have a little bit of a, a critical eye to what he was like as a younger man. Um, But it it seems to be someone who was very close to him are are given these accounts. And it's the original accounts. When Matthew and Luke were written, they were really pulling from Mark. Mark had already been written, and they kind of had Mark open as they were writing their own Gospels and elaborating on it. So it was the first Gospel that was written. You know, it's extremely action-packed. The author of Mark loves the word immediately. <laughs> it's ethos and, and you know, translated immediately from the Greek. And really, it's action-packed. Everything in Mark seems like it's happening in a whirlwind. And then immediately this happened. And then we went there. And suddenly this thing happened. And then immediately after, we went over to do this thing. This is part of why I kind of think it was Peter. He's probably reliving this whirlwind that he was in for three years. And I'm sure every day with Jesus felt like a whirlwind. You probably didn't just wake up and have breakfast and just lounge around very often. Like, things with Jesus, it's just action happened and broke out and in surprising ways. But it kind of, one thing to the next, you're almost like catching your breath if you read Mark straight through because it just seems like adventure just follows Jesus everywhere he goes. You know, Mark jumps right into the action. He doesn't spend much time in the birth narratives. He kind of starts right off with John the Baptist getting a little piece, and then Jesus is off and running. And so we're gonna kind of dive into this Jesus off and running. It says, in the very beginning of Mark, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, I'll be honest, I've studied Scripture a lot. I've done a lot of historical reference in Scripture, but just to be really honest, like well, a lot of times when I, I would just pass right over the place that they were in Scripture because it just made no sense to me. But Kieran and I had the exciting opportunity to go to Israel last year, and it's like forever, like slows me down and helps me kind of picture these moments now. This is what Capernaum, like this is what the synagogue in Capernaum, this probably was the synagogue in Capernaum, probably exactly where Jesus went in this moment. And he kind of, it's a room about the size of this. Not much bigger. You know, he kind of came into a crowd. They were there on the Sabbath to kind of learn, the, to hear the scriptures read, to kind of sing their songs, to worship together as a community, to worship the God that they know. And for some reason, even though it's so early in Mark, Jesus is recognized as a teacher. He's given a place. It's the seat of Moses, and he's given a chance to kind of teach or elaborate on Scripture. So we see from the very beginning, people recognize Jesus from wherever he's coming from as having the capacity and the ability to teach in this setting. And so he would have taken a seat in a room just like this, about this size, and he would have started to share. And what happens next is a little bit kind of crazy, right? It says, they went to Capernaum, and when he began to teach, and the people were amazed at his teachings because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Jesus, just then, you know, suddenly, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit. So in a crowd like this, someone stood up and, and cried out, what do you want with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> now, that would be a little startling. Please, nobody get up and start yelling. That would be a little startling. We wouldn't know what to do with that, right? But this happens right in the middle of this crowd. And Jesus says, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now, if that happened this morning, you would not forget. You would not remember anything else that happened, right? Let's, let's, let's be really honest. Like well, that was crazy. Who spoke? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the short guy. I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, you don't understand. Something crazy happened, right? Like, um, like nothing else would really stand out from your morning. Um, but here's this is interesting. The people were also amazed, and they asked each other, "What is this? A new teaching?" <laughs> wait, wait. They're still, they're still thinking about the teaching. Isn't that wild? Like, I mean, I would not even remember who taught, much less what they said. A new teaching and with authority. Oh, and he even gives orders to impure spirits and obeys them. But the teaching stood out so much to them that they walked out saying, a new teaching with authority, this is crazy. And he drives out evil spirits. Wild, right? News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. His coming out party is in this small little room And it's his teaching that's getting at least half the airtime, if not more. Now, why is that? Well, the rabbinical culture is something we don't really understand right now. But for centuries and centuries and centuries, Jewish people worshipped at the temple, and they had a whole sacrificial system of how they kind of like were obedient to God. When they get carried off into captivity, they no longer have access to the temple, For hundreds of years, they no longer have access to the temple. And something interesting happens during this diaspora, where they're spread to the ends of the earth. A new reverence and study for the scripture of God starts to come to the forefront. And the belief is very firm that if we are obedient to the word of God, we were carried off into captivity because we are disobedient. And it's by our obedience that we will get taken home, and God will return to us, and we can return to the things as they were. We can get back the old way, the good life, if we are obedient and we follow the teachings closely. Now, if you're going to follow the scripture closely, how do you do that, right? Especially carried off into a foreign land. Well, you know, they were hoping to bring about the redemption by obedience. But how to follow and interpret the law became a very, very important question. And we've all read Scripture. It's not always the most straightforward thing in the world. There were a lot of opinions about when it says this in Scripture, it means this. Well, I think it means this. And how do we decide? If you're trying to be faithful to the Word and you don't understand what the Word says, that's really difficult. So who becomes really important in a culture like this? The teacher's. The people who understand the law, the people who have studied the law, the people who teach the law. And in this, the rabbinical culture, rabbis became almost celebrities in this culture. I mean, they were known. And in fact, they had kind of their own yokes, that they would, their own way of interpreting the law. And you would study under a rabbi who had his own yoke. And they be, people became very familiar with what so-and-so believed under their yoke and what so-and-so believed under their yoke. Almost like if somebody came into to you and kind of gave a really sharply political statement, you'd be like, oh, that guy's quite a Republican or that guy's quite a Democrat because you could immediately categorize it. Well, they, they had ongoing debates in their culture, and they could immediately categorize where you fell along these kind of tensions. But then Jesus comes in and upsets the apple cart a little bit. You know, the importance of teachers has risen. so yeah, along comes Jesus, and he doesn't teach like the other teachers. He teaches very differently, and in a world that is kind of obsessed with following the law obediently, here comes a new teaching, and it stands out from the rest of it. He comes with power and a new teaching, and this is really interesting because they actually call him a rabbi with authority. Now, I kind of immediately, as reading that scripture, tied that to the fact that he also showed power to deliver a demon, so that's his authority. But this is actually different. We were reading this through our lens. A rabbi with authority has authority to teach his own yoke, which is interesting. You know, it's actually a special role within society. Like like when they, and what this special role was, when you were studying to become a rabbi, you were to learn a specific rabbi's yoke. And you were not allowed to teach anything but that rabbi's yoke. So if you were like a student, like I, you know, my mentor was Pat Goodman in life, basically, if I was to study under Pat Goodman and then I was commissioned to go preach, I could only teach you what Pat Goodman believed theologically about anything. Because my role was to be his voice into the society. I was carrying his yoke as one of his disciples. And that's all I could teach about. I was commissioned to be a representative, but sometimes and unique settings, when the rabbinical culture around them saw someone who had really interesting ideas that came out in these rabbinical discussions, and they had a new yoke, or new thoughts, or new ways of doing things, to be a rabbi with authority meant you could develop your own yoke. And the way that would happen, how does one become one? Two rabbis with authority had to lay hands on you and commission you to be a rabbi with authority. You had to get permission from basically the governing body of rabbis to say, I like your ideas and they should be shared, and we're gonna pray over you. We're gonna send you out, and now you're a rabbi with authority. You can go and teach your own yoke. But only with two rabbis already having authority commissioning you could this happen. So, this is a really interesting question. When Jesus comes with a new teaching and he comes out of left field, who's this guy? Teaching with authority? I've never heard anything like this. Where's he getting this stuff? right this is a big question and it was the buzz of the town even more than the healing the buzz of the town was that Jesus was coming with a new kind of teaching you know how does Jesus have the audacity to have his own yoke becomes a central question in his ministry or where does this come from in fact we see it later in mark They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. The bigwigs come out, and they are ready to, they want to know where Jesus has the audacity to do this. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave this authority to you to do this? Do you understand the heart of the question? Where do you get off teaching your own yoke? I didn't sign off on it. This guy didn't sign off on it. We're all standing right here. No one here signed off on it. Why are you doing this? Where do you... Where do you think you have the authority to do this from? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. And by the way, this is very rabbinical. If you were to ask me, if I was like a rabbi, what's three plus three? You know, the child's answer would be to say six. But to demonstrate that not only do I understand the answer, but I can kind of reframe the question. A rabbinical answer would be, well, what's three times two? It's the same answer, but it's actually defining that not only do I know your answer, but I'm expounding upon it. And that's a rabbinical way to answer a question like this. So they say, where do you get your authority? And Jesus answers in a very rabbinical way. I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. (laughs) <laughs> and so now they're caught, and so they kind of huddle up. You can see them kind of like, all right, yeah, we'll get right back to you on that. Hold on. Yeah, okay, so, and this is a little, it, it, we get a little insight into their side discussion. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, ah, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things, you don't get it, but I'm implying that my authority comes from the same exact place that John the Baptist's authority comes from, which is actually more accurate than you even realize. Because if we kind of get to where was Jesus commissioning, well, where did his authority come from? In Mark nine, in Mark one, it tells us right before he goes to teach the passage. Right before this, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need repentance. He was being commissioned by John, and let's see if we can find a second rabbinical voice commissioning him in this, right? Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Where did Jesus' authority come from? John the Baptist and God on high spoke and anointed him to go and teach. So when they ask, where does your authority come from? And he says, I'll ask you, where does John the Baptist's authority come from? He's not even being that sarcastic. He's being dead serious. It's coming from John the Baptist and from the source that commissioned John the Baptist, God himself. I've been given the authority to teach a new yoke by God on high. And this was a big disturbance to the whole world as they kind of walked through this. It really broke the mold of the rabbinical culture. So Jesus the rabbi what does this kind of mean for us that Jesus was a rabbi? Well, we know that Jesus is God. The author of life walked this earth teaching us how to live. That's a pretty significant thing. The author of life walked this earth and kind of taught us how to live. Because, like we, we really take this for granted. I mean, there were huge debates about how to be obedient to God, and that was all that raged through their culture. And God himself takes human form and comes as a teacher willing to walk them through, this is how you live. I will show you how the earth was created and how you walk well in that. And we miss it daily. The words of God that commission us of how the world will operate and how we live well in that. You know, he also came to tell them this was a big part of his yoke. Faithful obedience wouldn't be what saves them. It's not going to save them. They were striving so hard to get the letter of the law right, and they were missing that this was not going to be what brought about their redemption. In fact, part of the story is that God came, anyways, in the midst of their disobedience, in the form of Jesus. He came, he came because they were unable to be faithful and obedient. Because you are unable to be faithful and obedient, I will come to you to rescue you because you're stuck. This is part of the message: you're stuck, but the kingdom is near and it's coming. Because God loves you and he's not waiting for you to get it right. You know, this comes into conflict. He comes into conflict with the teachers of the law in this way. So now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have them with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. No one, this is such a weird statement, right? And this seems so out of place. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What's he saying to the Pharisees? He's basically saying, your old paradigms can't fit my new reality. You're bringing broken old things and you're trying to put new life, new wine into something that can't hold it. He's come to break the mold. In the form of the rabbi, he comes to break the rabbinical traditions and say, There's a new path that I'm charting out here for life. I'm going to show you how to live. But if you keep bringing your old paradigm, it's not going to fit. It's not going to fit. And he came into conflict with them over rituals. And fasting. see, the teachers of the law kind of put a lot of really restrictions on people to try to be as obedient as possible. And that was the heart in the initial parts. But you get the sense that it got a little bit out of hand. It got a little bit out of hand in the sense that, the, you know, the teachers of the law kind of used it as a way of like oppressing. Like it was a way of kind of putting them on a pedestal and a way of kind of keeping people down because other people couldn't kind of keep the restrictions that they kept. It kind of became a tiered society. And it did not feel good to Jesus that what was meant for life was being used for oppression. And he just wouldn't abide by that. So it brought him into conflict. You know, I think we're hard on the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they were the obstacles to what Jesus was trying to do. But in some ways, I have a little bit of empathy for them. You know, Jesus would have seemed like an obstacle to redemption to them. If they really believed, and I believe that... In the midst of it, I think they got layers of kind of a corruption on top of it, but at its core, they wanted their people to be obedient to God. And here comes Jesus saying, there's a new path from this, and they're worried that he's going to lead them all off astray, you know, and the, the, the very thing that would bring about the redemption, he thinks Jesus is leading them away from redemption, you know, and the Pharisees would have felt this very much in the sense that like, they really believed that the Messiah would come and bring freedom for them if they just followed the letter of the law perfectly. And you see the, the Sadducees who really believe that there is no eternity, so we really need to live in the best situation we have, and Jesus' heretical teachings might get us in trouble with Rome, and that's the worst thing that could happen to us. So they're, they're trying to protect their people, right? They're trying to protect them from Jesus. The Herodians really believe that Herod was supposed to be king, so they all have these ideas that form it, but the problem is, To protect their interests or their truth, they were willing to do that at all costs, even to take the life of a man. They had lost their, like, compass on how to navigate life. And they had gotten so mired in, like, the letter of the law that they had forgotten what the law was meant, which was to bring life to people. And it comes into conflict in one way. We see this over the Sabbath. You know, the crowds may have seen Jesus as a rabbi with authority, a great teacher. They would have seen this. But the religious leaders had another name. He's a heretic. He is a danger to our society. And this is the conflict. The crowds loved the teaching that brought life. And the religious elite said, we got to protect what we have because he's disrupting the apple cart. You know, his new reality, the letter of the law was being used oppressively and the spirit of law was being lost. You know, Jesus was about freedom and human flourishing. He wanted people to thrive and to succeed and to live in his new kingdom well. And it made him appropriately angry that life was being stolen from people in the name of the law. He knew that what was needed was not obedience leading to redemption, but redemption through grace that led to obedience. Obedience wasn't going to bring about redemption. Grace and redemption would lead to people walking in obedience out of gratitude. And it's a massive reversal. And, it, you know, and so it's really one of the examples of how this came into conflict in the way that they taught was over the Sabbath. It says another time, you know, what was the Sabbath created for? Let's kind of go back here. The Sabbath was created because God saw the need for humans to rest. And he built into the rhythms of life a place for rest and recovery because he knows us how we're wired. He built us that way. He wants us to live in a refreshed, replenished way. And what happened with the Sabbath was that people got so restrictive of it that you can't walk certain distances on the Sabbath. If your donkey falls into like a hole, you're not supposed, you're supposed to leave him there for the rest of the day. Like there's all these layers of what it meant to be a faithful Jew because it's our faithful obedience that will bring about redemption. So we can't do anything that resembles work on the Sabbath. And this was being taught and this was being kind of held upon. And guess what? Who has an easier time resting on the Sabbath? The rich. Because they didn't need everything, every moment of every day to kind of survive. So it says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue, another place just like this, about this size. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So you can picture, and I'm not blaming you people sitting in the back. But you can picture people kind of hanging in the back, hanging on the sides, just waiting for the chance to accuse Jesus, right? They're just waiting for him to do something wrong. And Jesus is aware of the climate that he walks into. They were waiting to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? That's a pretty obvious question, right? You don't have to be a rabbi to get the easy answer here. Like, to do life, to do good. Right? But they're so angry at what he's doing that they remain silent. They remain silent and sulking in the face of life or death. (laughs) Jesus looks around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Can you picture it? It's an obvious question, people. It's an obvious question. Are you more married to the letter of the law and what you want, or do you want to see life springing forth from where I am? And because they're so stuck to their traditions and they're so convicted of their way that they don't see the God of Israel who has come among them and is bringing life everywhere he goes. And Jesus is irritated and says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And everyone celebrated, right? No. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is in Mark 3. (laughs) It did not take long for Jesus to have enemies who wanted him dead. And he was just a teacher at this point. All they knew about him was that he was a teacher. And he has upset the apple cart to such a degree that they wanted him out. Even if it meant taking a man's life, which I'm pretty sure there's a law against that in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we're going to look over that one, right? Like, it's making the law work for you, I guess. So this is Jesus. This is what he's, They were so blinded by their truth that they couldn't see life and freedom when it was right in front of them. So Jesus is a teacher. What does this mean to us that Jesus is a teacher? Well, I think it means several things. His words have stood the test of time. His words have stood for all time. His truth, his way to live still resonates today. Like we have the path to live because Jesus laid it out for us. And again, it's not by obedience that we'll be saved. We know standing back with this years of reflection that he has already done the work to save us and that has set us free to walk in obedience. It's out of freedom that we walk in obedience, not out of hope of redemption. He has shown us the way to live and his words carry authority even now his words carry authority you know in Matthew 11:29 through 30 this is what he says about his yoke his teaching what he will bring to the people take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light this is jesus defining his own yoke of teaching This is what he's bringing to the masses. This is what's irritating the teachers of the law. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because it's freedom. It's to say, I know you can't keep the law, but my yoke promises redemption for you and obedience that will follow. So trusting Jesus, what does it mean for us to trust Jesus as a teacher in our lives? Well, there's a way that the world works and we can either rail against that and we can be angry that that's the way the world works or we can kind of try to walk in step. We have the opportunity to learn from the one who built this world, right? We can kind of rail against the way the world is, or we can start to say, there's a reason the world operates the way it does. Can I learn from the author of life on how to live in it well? That doesn't mean that there won't be confusion. Doesn't mean that there won't be heartache. And it doesn't mean that there won't be things that don't make sense. Those things will definitely be there, even with the teacher of all eternities with us, We will have our moments of confusion. We will have our moments where we just go before him and say, Jesus, I can't make sense of this. That is a natural place to be. But we have the great teacher, the great rabbi that we can lay those things before. And he might answer us with a really frustrating question (laughs) that calls us to a deeper truth. We might not get the clear-cut answer all the time because he's leading us deeper and he wants us to have a deeper understanding of things. But he walks with us in it. You know, the beautiful thing about what a teacher meant in this is he walked with his disciples for three years doing everything that they did. They followed Jesus every day. The rhythms of life. They participated with breakfast. They participated with work. They participated with play. They did everything around their teacher, and they learned how to live like their teacher. Here's what Jesus promises. Not that he'll solve everything or it'll always make perfect sense, but that he will walk intimately with you as your teacher through whatever you go through. It's a powerful picture. We can find refuge and security in his words because they carry authority. And in his words are promises of redemption and restoration and and an eternity where all things will be made right. And we can rest in those words because his words carry authority. Not authority given from two rabbis with authority. Authority given from on high, from God himself and commissioned out into our world. So just a few questions, and the worship team can kind of come back up and join me. Where do you need to learn from Jesus? Where does Jesus' teacher, where does that intersect with your life right now? Where where are you just struggling to kind of make life work? Invite him in as a teacher to say, Jesus, teach me how to walk in this thing better. Teach me how to walk in my job better because it's frustrating. Teach me how to walk through relational chaos better because I need your guidance and your direction. Where do you need to let Jesus' words have authority in your own life? Where do they need to have authority in your own life? Are there ways that you're kind of like just find yourself just disagreeing with God and wanting to live on your own way and it's time to just say, God, you have authority in my life to call me to wherever I go. I will submit. And the final thing, where do you need to learn to rest in the teachings of Jesus? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And his words bring freedom wherever he goes. Where do you need to learn how to just rest in the fact that Jesus, the good teacher, wants to bring life and freedom everywhere he goes? It's a prayer Sunday. Um, So if you have questions, you can actually text them to my phone. Um, And if you want prayer this Sunday, you can head right down the hall anytime during the worship song or anytime after the service. Uh, There's a sanctuary in there and people will be waiting to pray with you. Um, and they'll pray for you for anything that you're carrying this morning, whether it's a physical ailment or it's just something heavy on your heart. Whatever you need, they'll be there to kind of to walk with you through that. Um, pray with me as, we, uh, as the worship team kind of leads us. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a good teacher. Father, I think in the light of everything else that you do, it's easy to neglect and to miss that you taught us the way to live in this life. Lord, that you brought words that were empowering and gave us freedom. Lord, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for bringing a new yoke, one that, we could, one that we could live well under instead of one that was crushing to our souls. Lord, we thank you that you battle for freedom in our lives, and we pray that you would teach us how to live in the world that you have built and that you know how to operate. In Jesus' name, amen.